Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're continuing talking about what we learn from the problem of evil. We've gone over a few things talking about a Irenaean soul-building theodicy, or kind of the idea of how God might have higher purposes for allowing evil, and then we talked about some problems with that. Anyway, you can go back and listen to that, but now we're going to move on to a section called God's Options and the Free Will Defense. So, though free will was already a reason that people were giving, free will defense was developed mainly in response to a person named J.L. Mackey. And Mackey came up with a a different angle on the problem of evil, and he formulated it slightly different. Basically, he said that if you formulate it this way, then it is just even further evidence that there is no existence of this omni-god. So he said there were less evil options that God could have taken. So rather than saying God could have either created complete robots that do everything he said that aren't free at all, and completely free creatures that just happen to go evil sometimes, he said, well, there seem to be other options. God could have had the best of both worlds. And he presented these two options, said, an omni-god could create persons who always freely choose what is good. And an omni-god would create persons who always freely refrain from choosing evil if it could. But God created persons who sometimes freely choose to do evil. And he points out, if this is the case, then... Again, this proves that there is no God. And formulating it this way just adds the dimension that if you really believe in omni-God and omnipotent, then he could make creatures that just happen to always freely choose to do good. So the free will defense is something that was brought forth by Alvin Plantinga, and he says, no, it's not quite that simple because that's not the way freedom works. Anyway, do you have anything to add about Mackey's argument for evil? Two important points. First, it's a logical argument. That is, it's it's meant to be taken that if anyone accepted the premises, then it's merely a logical argument. And he was saying that the Christian is committed to all three premises. The Christian has to believe that God can create people. He has to believe that God can do anything that's logically possible, and the Christian is committed to believing that a person who always does good is logically possible because Jesus did it. And so it has to be the case that the Christian is committed to every premise that he provided. The second point I'd like to make, so, well, let me let me elucidate. The point of a logical argument is I don't even need to know about the world. I just need to know that these are propositions that your worldview entails, And so what I'm proving is that, given your worldview, we have a contradiction that's logical in nature. It just follows from logical principles. And that's a significant point because what Alvin Plantinga is dealing with is called the logical problem of evil. That is distinguished from the evidential problem of evil that we've been talking about. The second is that Mackey's argument does work for a certain type of view of freedom. If a person is a compatibilist such that God can create desires in people that will result in their freely choosing to act on their strongest desire, which is consistent with the vast majority view of Christians, at least since Augustine, then this argument logically goes through. Mackey's argument is actually 
a good argument logically. It logically entails both the premises are intelligent Christian belief, if you're a compatibilist, and the conclusion therefore follows. So I think that Mackey's argument is actually an astounding success. Mackey's argument is a success in the sense that it applies to the majority view of Christians throughout all of Christian history. The other point, I think, to realize about what Mackey is doing is that if he's working with the majority view of free will, that they're going to have to explain how his argument doesn't logically hold together. Now, the distinction between a logical argument and an evidential argument is that an evidential argument relies on an inductive proof. That is, it relies upon evidence that is more or less likely to be true or probably true. And Mackey's argument doesn't rely on that at all. He's just saying, given propositions that you're committed to in your faith, this is the logical result. Okay. And then Alvin Plantinga is coming up with what he calls the free will defense. And I was listening to a, a video where they interviewed him earlier, and he pointed out that a defense is not the same thing as a theodicy. Last time we defined theodicy as basically a justifying story about why God would allow evil to see what his purposes are or something along those lines. Whereas his defense is just to dismantle this logical argument to say that these premises don't necessarily lead to this conclusion. So the way he does that is he basically points out that, well, basically he just rejects the compatibilist view of free will, saying that that's not actually free will. Uh, he believes more in a libertarian view of free will. Yeah, he called it a contra-causal freedom, or the ability to act against the causal determinism or causes that, that may dictate what occurs. And I'm going to try to explain it, and you can fill in the gaps here. So, basically, he also kind of appeals back to the Molinist view that we talked about last time. And he's saying, well, let's say God could have been looking at all the possible worlds that he could create. And he can see that if he wanted to have free creatures, that all of the possible worlds that included these free creatures, every single one of these free creatures in all the possible worlds would at one point go wrong. At least one point, and probably a whole lot more. Yeah, and keep in mind he's saying it's just logically possible that this is the case, not that it is the case. Right, exactly. And he, when I was listening to the interview, he pointed that out. He's like, oh, I, obviously I don't know, but this is logically possible, and that's all I have to show to dismantle the problem of evil that Mackey put forth. Anyway, so when God is looking at this, he can't see any world where these free creatures don't do wrong. And so of the options available to him to accomplish, or I don't know how he defines the way God determines what the best possible world is, but anyway, he says God looks at the best possible world, and if it includes free creatures, it also happens to include the possibility and or, and it will include people going wrong. So the world that has been created is the best option that God has, but it does include free creatures and free creatures in all the possible worlds that he could have created do go wrong. And therefore, you can still hold all of the omnis, and then you can still have bad things happening, and none of those things being wrong. And I guess, he, sorry, one other thing, he pointed out that is it, you have to define omnipotence basically as God can do things that are logically possible, not the illogical, such as, you know, make a, a contradiction like a square circle or something like that. He points out what we call Leibniz's lapse, and everybody agrees that Becky is correct on this count at least. 
God could create people who are free, but God cannot create people who are free and bring it about that they always do what is good, because if he brings about what they do, then they're not free. Oh, there you go. That was what I was trying to say. That's the logical contradiction, that you can't bring about someone's free acts because entailed in the definition of a free act, that person or that entity has to bring them about alone and not be caused to bring them about. Yeah, so everybody agrees that he has successfully pointed out Leibniz's lapse with respect to libertarian free will and that that is the essential move. There's another move that people have a lot more questions about, and that is whether or not his concept that it's just logically possible that every single essence that God could create would go wrong at some point in their lives. He calls that concept transworld depravity. So the notion that every individual essence, and remember, we're just talking about logically possible persons that, that God could create, and we're talking about whatever is logically essential to whatever the identity of that person is, that's what God could create. And when God inspects all of the logically possible persons that he can create to his horror, he discovers they all go wrong at some point. Now, there's another wrinkle I want to point out. This is one of the refinements that Mackey brought along, and, and I think it's a very good refinement. He's pointing out, well, this doesn't have to be the best of all possible worlds. Maybe God creates a whole range of worlds. This may not be the best of all possible worlds. It may be the least of the good worlds that God could create. So every world that has some positive net value, God could create and be justified in creating. And there may be all kinds of possible worlds that God has actualized, but it doesn't mean that ours is the best of all possible worlds. And so while he points out Leibniz's lapse, he points it out twice over because it's Leibniz who talked about God creating the best of all possible worlds, which, of course, was famously satired by Voltaire, talking about God creating that this is the best of all possible worlds. And so we have this notion of transworld depravity. Now, this feature of, of transworld depravity is questionable for two primary reasons, in my view. Remember what you said about Plantinga realizes that if a person has free will, then they have to be the one who brings it about. It can't be God. So God Though he can create free people, he can't bring about their acts. The person whose acts they are has to bring it about. But on this count, Plantic is absolutely and clearly wrong because on the Molinist view that he adopts, remember what Molinism says, God sees whatever persons would do if they were created in any given possible world. So God doesn't look at people. He looks at their individual essences that could be created, and he sees the entire set of indexical truths that are true of that person. Every proposition that's true of that person's life includes propositions like if Albert were created in possible world X, then Albert would freely do Y, okay? That kind of a proposition. So if Adam is created to be free in this world, then he will freely choose to eat the apple, okay? We can take that. Now, who is it that brings about the truth of that? And the answer is no one does. It's just given in the universe. It's given in these propositions that God sees just happen to be true about this person. It's very clear that it's not the person who brings about the truth value of this proposition, because it's true of that person whether that person is created or not. And there's one thing we can be certain of, and that's that if something doesn't exist, it doesn't bring about anything at all. So we've got all these uncreated people who have all these true propositions about what they would freely do. So given Molinism, what I say is the very motivating factor for adopting this view of free will in the first place is then taken away by the notion of Molinism and the notion of middle knowledge that God knows what people would freely do if they were created in any given possible world. And so Molinism seems to be inconsistent with the very free will that Plantinga believes is really what the Christian needs for a free will defense. 
The second problem with the notion of transworld depravity, that is that every single essence would go wrong at least at one point in its life if it were created in any given possible world, is that why would God be limited in this way? Clearly, essences who never go wrong are logically possible and so have to be included among the logically possible essences. And so the question that's never been answered to my satisfaction, and there have been a number of articles questioning this very point, is why was God limited to the people who created when he had this infinite number of possible persons who never go wrong because they always freely choose to do good? Because it is logically possible for a person to always freely choose what is right. In fact, Christians believe that there was such a person, Jesus of Nazareth, just as I said. Where does this limitation come from? In one of the videos watching, the person pointed out, it was like, also, you know, a big problem for this is, especially for Christians or anybody who believes in an afterlife, most Christians believe that free will is the reason that there's evil and suffering. Maybe, okay, but if you believe in a heaven, and if you believe that there's no suffering in heaven, and that you're going to go to heaven, do you believe that in heaven there's free will and no suffering? Because if that's possible, then it's possible that God could have created it that way to begin with. And also, if you think that people are going to be going to heaven and say, oh, well, they just, you know, back to the character thing, they need to develop this character. Like, well, why didn't he just create them that way already with the developed character so that they wouldn't exercise their free will in such a way? And we'll get into that more in a bit. So what we're talking about, let's, let's recognize what Alvin Plantic accomplished. What Alvin Plantic accomplished is, if you're an open theist, the free will defense is actually an answer to Mackey's argument because they don't have to adopt Molinism. And they can hold the view that it is, in fact, logically possible that every single being would freely choose to go wrong because it's, it, it could just be the case that that's the truth about every individual that could be created for some reason. Just why that's the case, we don't know, but it is logically possible. It's also logically possible that there's a whole group of people who never do wrong. And so on open theism, I think that the free will defense actually works as a valid type of a defense to the logical argument. I don't believe it works on Molinism, and it certainly doesn't work for a Calvinist or somebody who's adopting a compatibilist view of free will. And so I think this is a major accomplishment on, on Plantinga's part, but not quite in the way he did it. Yeah, and a good thing to point out, I mean, like I said, he wasn't trying to come up with a theodicy here. He was just trying to show that it was logically possible to believe all three premises at the same time and not come to the conclusion that therefore there is no God. All he showed is logically possible that these exist and there is a God. Uh, one of the problems that obviously comes up with this is like, well, okay, there is moral evil. Let's assume, let's say, sure, people are responsible for them and that therefore answers a bunch of the questions. God didn't do it, people do it. But like we talked about in the beginning, what of all these natural evils? So that doesn't explain them at all. There's still earthquakes and tsunamis, and there's still tectonic plates that shift and cause earthquakes and volcanoes and hurricanes. And who caused that? Certainly no human. So planning it does have something to say about this, but most people don't find it very satisfying. He basically says that it's possible that there are other... I mean, I guess I see where he gets it, because, you know, we believe in the devil and demons and such. And he just says, well, it's, it's logically possible that there are other malevolent beings that are also very powerful that are using their free will to cause these problems. But, I mean, obviously, that has another problem where it's like, well, if God is truly omnipotent, then he certainly doesn't have to allow these creatures to even exist. 
my point of view about the suggestion that Plantinga made that, well, maybe the evil spirits freely bring about natural evils is why on earth isn't that just another evil? If God is giving spirits the power to meddle in the natural world by bringing about earthquakes and tornadoes and stuff, imagine the kind of power he's suggesting that these evil spirits have. Why on earth is God giving them power to meddle in the earth in that way? I mean, all he's doing is giving us another problem of evil as far as I'm concerned. So I don't see how his response really responds to the problem at all. However, let's admit this. It is just logically possible. Barely logically possible, but it is logically possible. So it responds to the logical argument. It does do that. All right, and then the last point on the free will defense, or at least specifically for this section that you point out, is it also raises a question. And again, you know, he was just going for the defense just to show the logical thing, but people that try to rely on this too much come and run into this problem. Let me give an example. So let's say there's a 16-year-old kid and his parents find out that he's out of control. He's taking his car and running over the neighbor's yard and chasing cats and killing animals or something like that. So what a responsible parent would do would restrict the freedoms of this child, or at least his privileges, so that he w- they would take away the car keys for a period of time, or they would take away his ability to cause these problems, while some may argue, you know, they're not stopping his will, they're at least stopping his ability to do these things. And a lot of people have pointed out, well, if God was actually a loving, responsible parent, then I think that the amount of free will that we have it would be irresponsible because we've definitely exercised it as humans in terrible ways. I mean, just look at the Holocaust or murders and rapes. Like, does free will really justify those things? Yeah, and I think this is a good kind of a of a problem to raise, but there's really no answer to it. It kind of depends on a person's personal values, right? How valuable is free will? I think we can all recognize that human free will is of immense value. And that it would make sense that the entire world is created so that we can make free choices and have an arena in which soul building can take place. But that's a a theodicy, not merely a logical defense. But again, the value question isn't one that arises in the logical argument. That is, we're asking, well, is free worth really worth it? We're asking, is the logical answer that you're giving is one that I buy? Now, that's a question of weight of evidence and so forth. Is it logically possible that free will is actually worth it to a person who's omniscient? I think we'd all have to answer, well, yeah, I don't think any of us is in a position to say otherwise. Very true. All right, so let's move on to another aspect of this. It kind of plays off of free will in a way, but also other things. So the next section is titled, The Less Evil Options Argument from Evil. So you point out, you say, the omni-god, it would seem, if he was truly omnipotent and creates ex nihilo, had other options open to it in creation that would not take away free will in the way that Mackey pointed out, and don't require as much evil that as exists in this world. We can call this the less evil moral option argument. So I'll just read this and you can explain it. You'd say, God created creatures who go wrong with distressing frequency, and Mackey argued that the omni-god could have created creatures who never went wrong, if it were truly omnipotent. But due to Leibniz's lapse that we talked about, Mackey was wrong with respect to morally significant actions that must be free in, in a libertarian sense, so basically God couldn't control people to not do evil. However, God could have created cognitively perfect creatures instead of us, 
and such creation is not incompatible with libertarian free will in the most robust sense. I guess this kind of goes back to what we're saying. Like, so let's say a greater good is character development. Well, why create characters that need to develop character? Why not just create them with the character already developed? But I guess you're kind of actually coming at it from a different point. You're saying, character decide. Let's just say God could create creatures that have near omniscient capabilities, because clearly that's logically possible. God himself is omniscient. So even if we say not quite omniscient, pretty dang close is not anything that God couldn't do if he's truly omnipotent and creates ex nihilo. You can create anything from, from anything. I mean, that's what ex nihilo omnipotence should mean, right? Yeah, I mean, if God can do anything that's logically possible or he's only limited by logical constraints, then it seems very clear that God had no constraint on creating us. It seems that the value of free will arises from the fact that it allows us to develop as persons into something that we're not and to create our character by making free choices over a lifetime so that our choices become habits and our habits become character and our, and our character becomes exaltation and divine life, right? So it seems that the answer to the question, well, why would freedom outweigh evil or why would freedom justify God in allowing evils? And the answer is that, well, it does because it has such great value. But what we're pointing out is, well, why did God create undeveloped creatures then? If the real value is in the fact that we have this incredible character, why doesn't he just create us so that we're omniscient and can clearly see that acting immorally is just stupidity of the first order? And we would have the scientific ability to do anything scientifically possible, obviously. And so we would have the technology to stop earthquakes. We would have the technology to cure any disease. We could stop virtually all natural evils, and moral evil wouldn't occur because moral evil, I think it's very arguable, arises out of sheer stupidity and inability to assess what is actually the best for persons. Yeah, and as you basically pointed out, all natural evil, at least the way humans experience, is pretty much just because of our ignorance. Let's, you know, the more we advance in science, the more we kind of gain mastery over the natural world. And it's logically possible that we can eradicate diseases and we could not suffer from earthquakes because we could know when they are coming and we could make the proper accommodations. We could build indestructible homes, you know. We could do anything, like you said, that's capable of science, which obviously we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of that. So this was within God's options if he's creating ex nihilo, and he didn't take that on the classical view. So therefore, more reason that there's not God. So let me actually just read over your logical argument, because then we're going to go over a few objections that people could bring to it. And then I just want your responses to these objections, but they're responding maybe specifically to one of these premises individually, so that's why I want to read them. So you have A, the omni-god exists. B, an omni-god could create creatures that are virtually omniscient, who would be capable of freely eradicating many natural evils that have occurred and many that continue to occur. C, an omni-god would create creatures who are virtually omniscient, if it could, to empower them to freely eradicate these natural evils. And D, humans are not virtually omniscient. So, if all these are true, then A, the omni-god exists, is asserted, then that can't be true with all of these others. That's the contradiction. So, anyway, first objection is a believer in the omni-god might reject B, which again was that the omni-god could create creatures with this virtually omniscient capacity. And they could say that by arguing that even the omni-god cannot impart properties of near divinity to creatures. So, first off, 
why I, I didn't write enough here to flesh that out. So why would that be an option for them to say? And what would you respond to that? Well, it's the case that God can't create out of nothing creatures who have the virtue of having developed a moral character by making free choices in concrete situations. He could create them with perfect knowledge, but they would still have to be making free choices and develop as moral creatures. And if God has this limitation, what makes you believe that God can create omniscient beings? It seems that to be omniscient, a being would have to be uncreated like God. The only being we know who's omniscient, that they would say, is, a, is an uncreated being. But on their view, human beings are created out of nothing. And so it would appear that maybe God can't create a virtually omniscient person. The problem with that is I can't even begin to come up with an argument to show why that would be true. I mean, clearly omniscient beings are logically possible, and I can't see any reason to believe that God couldn't create such a near divinity. And let's say that, you know, he can't create an absolutely omniscient being. Just let's give that for a second. It's not true. But even if we gave that much, he could have created much more intelligent creatures than we are. And he still had that option open. So either way, the objection is defeated. Possible objection two is an objector may respond, your argument is still not a decisive logical argument. Whether any given person develops a cure for, let's say, smallpox or the bubonic plague is a matter of free will. So God cannot create creatures, even very smart creatures, and bring it about that they freely choose to develop these cures to diseases or, you know, also to freely choose to be moral acts. They still have the possibility of evil. So if it's just a logical argument, you'd have to say, is it logically possible for a very intelligent being to go wrong? And the answer would be, well, yeah, there have been some very intelligent people and they still went wrong. But an omniscient being or a being who is nearly omniscient, would we still say that they couldn't cure the kinds of diseases that we have if they had immensely greater knowledge or capacity for intelligence than we do? And I think the answer is, you know, I can see that I can, for instance, cure cancer and that a lot of people die from it. But I'm not going to do that because why? Because I'm stupid and can't see the benefit of doing so. And so it just seems inconsistent to say that I've got a nearly omniscient or an omniscient being and it has this capacity but doesn't do it. Would it still be the case that an omniscient being could go wrong? If we accept the premise that evil is essentially stupidity, then of course we're going to have to say that that's not a good argument. But what if evil is more than just stupidity? What if it's willful evil? What if a very intelligent or omniscient person is willfully evil and they still go wrong because they will to do evil, seeing even with pellucid clarity that it is evil and that it's worse for everybody involved and that it's not even good for them? And the answer would be, well, then create them with perfect wisdom in addition to perfect intelligence because it lacks wisdom to do something that is self-defeating when you could avoid a self-defeating behavior. And so, you know, could God create somebody with perfect wisdom? The answer is, well, again, why not? What's the argument? I know of no such argument. So the argument, I think, initially has some logical pull, but when we analyze it, I think it falls apart. Yeah, and I like you say, this objection is logically equivalent to asserting that the Omni-God creates people who need water to live. They know where there is water and can access it, but they may rationally choose to die rather than drink the water because they are free not to do so. So I was like, yeah, I guess it's possible, but like it would just, that's stupid. Yeah. What we're saying is we have intelligent people who act stupidly, and it's contrary to the definition of being intelligent to act stupidly. So it's a logical contradiction of the thought experiment that we've set up. In other words, it's an inconsistent type of an objection. 
because it rejects the very premise of the objection to begin with, that God creates omniscient beings who are also very wise. And the fourth objection is, it is good that the omni-god creates the fullest chain of being that it can consistent with what is good. The omni-god has created a full continuum of beings having a full range of intelligence from viruses and bacteria on the lower level of sentience to near-omniscient angels on the upper end of sentience. It is good that the full range of intelligence is manifest. It is just possible that God has created an infinite number of multiverses with the full array of every logical possibility of kinds of beings to display the fullness of his creative powers and the beauty of his glory. We just happen to fall within the range of beings having just our capacities for knowledge and cognitive rationality. So I guess you're basically just saying like there are those that view saying to get the fullest of creation, God has to create every possible thing that can be created and we just happen to be somewhere in there that has the problems that we have. But it's just good because it's just another manifestation of God's beautiful creative power. Right. This is the great chain of being argument. And actually Aquinas and a number of others give this argument, saying that it's good that God creates the fullest array and diversity of life and beings possible. And so it's also good, I suppose, that he creates both good and evil types of beings, and it's good that he creates beings who, you know, have to eat other beings to live and so forth. And I think the answer to that is that it's just nonsense. The answer is that it's not good. I mean, if if God is creating every type of being, that would include the being that wrecks havoc just for the purposes of wrecking havoc. That would include the devil. And creating an evil being doesn't make it good just because it's part of a large chain of being, nor does it make it good overall. I don't think that it can be said that the fullest chain or fullest array of beings logically possible is good. Certainly, we don't have the fullest array of logically possible beings in our particular end of the multiverse. And there are numerous multiverse arguments. But when we come right down to it, we'd have to say that the kind of multiverse we live in would have to be on the very lower end of not diversity, but of goodness that is wrought by diversity. This kind of value judgment just, I don't think it really holds water. Is it logically possible that the greatest array of being is good in and of itself? And I think we could agree that all of the varieties of animals and so forth is an amazing thing, and it has some value. But I think it's very questionable that it would have enough value to justify evils in any sense, and certainly that hasn't been demonstrated. Yeah, and you also point out, you say, the implication of this view is pretty much absurd. If we are successful, for example, in eradicating AIDS, then we reduce the overall value of the world in this view, because then the variety of the types of creatures is reduced. Yeah, so when we eradicated smallpox, we did a bad thing because we eradicated a part of the diversity. And when the dinosaurs died and all those forms of life went extinct, then Earth was less valuable. And God allowed it to happen anyway, so God doesn't seem to value this kind of diversity of life, and we can see that from the actual history of the world. So the argument isn't going to make sense in the natural world, and it's just nonsense in terms of the notion that if we eradicate evils, we're somehow reducing the overall value of the world. Yeah, because, yeah, then God wouldn't be very efficient at doing this, because I, I don't know, I was watching some documentary, and 96% of all life on this planet that existed has gone extinct through mass extinction events at one point or another, and that's pretty less diverse than it probably could have been. Anyway, let's move on to Objection 5. So Objection 5 is, the believer would undoubtedly retort, 
But the Omni-God may have his reasons for making us as cognitively limited as we are, even if it means that many natural evils continue that we could eradicate if we had better cognitive faculties than we actually do. After all, the Omni-God himself could have eradicated these same evils because it is omniscient and able to eradicate them, but apparently chose not to. We have no clue why the Omni-God would subject us to such devastating natural evils. We admit that preserving free will is not among the reasons that the Omni-God didn't create virtually omniscient beings instead of us. The evils that occur must be a necessary condition to the realization of some greater good that we cannot fathom. And this kind of just harkens back to the skeptical theist movement that you referred to earlier. Right, and so it fails because of the kinds of arguments we identified earlier. This would lead to moral quietism. But more importantly, it's not an answer at all. It's just an assumption without any support. And this kind of argument is an assertion without any basis. But if we're just dealing with logical possibility, does it defeat the logical argument that I made? Well, God just may have his reasons. And the answer is no, because we've shown that God could do something that would lead to much less evil. And you have to show why creating a world where there's much less evil wouldn't be preferable to one where there's a lot more evil. Because I've shown logically that there was a possibility for less evil. So just saying it's just logically possible that he has a reason is not really a response. It's just, well, maybe there's some reason. But it doesn't give us the reason, and so it just begs the question. Okay, and then, unless you have something else, I just want to read the very last sentence or paragraph that you have in this part of the paper. Do you have anything else before that? No, let's do that. So you say this, and it's a rather... uh, weighty statement, I guess we could say. You say, I believe that this argument from available lesser evils shows that the omni-god of classical theism does not exist. This is what we learn from the problem of evil. But we can only see it when we get up close and personal with actual instances of evil that rip the hearts out from our chests. So like we talked about, those examples we talked about last time of actual stories of, of real evil on the ground. So in the next few podcasts, we're going to start talking about what Mormonism and our unique position of ontology or, you know, that we're uncreated and unique Mormon views on God and such can bring to this view. But as for now, you say that decisively this problem of evil is a real problem, especially if you believe in this omni-god. What I want to see is that if we're adopting the view of the omni-god, I think that what we've demonstrated is that, in fact, your worldview reduces to absurdity because it means that anything we do is good, which I think is clearly absurd. It means that we could act or fail to act, and everything we do or fail to do is, is all for the best. And, and I think that's just nonsense. Christianity is based upon the fact that God has involved us in his work and that he himself became human to teach us what it was to be good like he is. It just seems to me that the notion of an omni-god is not reconcilable with the facts of evil that we experience in the world. Moreover, I think that there's a logical argument that is a modification of Mackey's argument, in a sense, that shows that the omni-god had open possibilities where there would be much less evil than, in fact, there is, if any evil at all. And God had that option available. And if God brings about a world where there's more evil than needs to be, then none of the goods are justified goods to justify existence of that world, and it fails as an answer to the problem of evil. And this logical problem of evil demonstrate that the existence of the omni-god is logically, not merely evidentially, but logically incompatible with what Christians seem to be committed to. Okay. 
And let me ask one question. It would probably, you could go a lot of ways with it, but just when we're thinking of the problem of evil, religion seems to be an answer to this problem just in and of itself, especially the Christian religion. So, for example, humans have asked since the dawn of any time we could cognitively understand that what we're experiencing is pain or suffering, why is it like this? And one of the answers that different cultures have come up with is their, you know, mythologies and religions and such to deal with this problem, giving the reasons. For example, I'd say in the Old Testament, most views were basically that evil happens because you're doing something that God doesn't like and you're getting punished in some way. And that's pretty much why bad things happen. I mean, at least in some of the Old Testament. But in Christianity, it would seem that Christ himself is, and the afterlife, is the solution to this problem of evil, saying, you know, everything's going to be made up in the afterlife. And so whatever you suffer here, it's okay, because you're going to be made up for. And, and Jesus seems to be an answer saying like, hey, it seems like this world's terrible and bad, but guess what? Because of Jesus, you can be forgiven and get better and everything's fine. So explain, if you will, why is that not sufficient and why does that actually possibly cause more problems of evil? You mean, why does a Christian commitment to God's punishing people for the evil that they do, and that explains evil? Well, not the punishment, just why isn't Jesus sufficient for the problem of evil, or why isn't it a joy in the afterlife? Because I know a lot of people will have gone that direction, I know this isn't part of the philosophy part of the logical problem of evil, but, you know, most people are like, well, that's the whole answer. Jesus, there you go, everything's going to be fine. Because it doesn't answer why the death of Rachel Runyon would be justified. It just begs the question. Now, let me say this. I think that the entire gospel is, in fact, a theodicy, and it's a working theodicy, in the sense that it explains human existence in a way that makes sense of what we experience. And so I think that's the strength of it. The notion that in an afterlife everything will be made up doesn't justify the evils that occur now. You have to explain why the evils are necessary now, not just to have them outweighed in an afterlife. Because the mere fact that there's an afterlife and everything is made good doesn't justify why things would occur now anyway. You have to justify that particular evil. And so it doesn't really respond to it. But I do want to say, I had this conversation with David Polson. I was in his office and we were talking about it. And I said, you know, Dave, I think that the entire plan of salvation just is a theodicy. And we wrote a paper about this jointly. For instance, I think the baptism for the dead is meant to answer the problem of injustice that arises if a person is damned to hell for eternity for things that, that they had no control over, like whether they died before they were eight or something, or whether they failed to be baptized as a child and their parents never heard of Christianity. So when I look at the plan of salvation, it seems to me to be kind of an explanation in a total context of life's experience. That's what we discuss in later chapters. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.